This is an ASCII Live media production for the Manly Warringah Seagulls official podcast channel. G'day, Steve Menzies here, and this is the Seagulls Business Podcast, hosted by Seagulls Commercial Manager Ben Brody and Chief Commercial Officer Luke Tucker. Each week, Ben and Luke will be joined by Seagulls corporate partners and other special guests to chat about all things business. And of course, a bit of footy. The Seagulls Business Podcast is proudly presented by Manly Media Partner, ASCII Live Media. Now, let's get down to business. Thank you, Beaver, and hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Seagulls Business Podcast, proudly presented by our media partner, ASCII Live Media. I'm Ben Brody, Commercial Manager at the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles, and I'm joined by my co-host and Chief Commercial Officer of the Sea Eagles, Luke Tucker. Welcome again, Luke. Thanks, Ben. On our best behaviour today for today's guest, yes. the boss is in the house. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Not mm-hmm. very often uh, two employees get to interview their boss, but that's where we're at today. A very warm welcome to Manly CEO, Stephen Humphreys. Thank you, boys, and be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, a pleasure having you along. We've had a few interviews with sponsors, with owners, but it's good to have you in to get an understanding of not just your role with the club, but your history in rugby league, because it is a long and varied one. So we're keen to hear it all. Warts and all. Good. Well, let's go. Well, let's go right back to the early days. Growing up, your father was a very successful rugby league administrator. So there's no doubt that rugby league was in your blood early. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, have memories of rugby league from from the very early days. My dad was a player and then a, you know, selector and then went on to have a, you know, a full-time career in administration. So, yeah, football was always around. I have very fond memories of, you know, barbecues with the team when I was a young fella and, you know, having the joy of being able to spend a bit of time with players who you used to watch on the field and admired. So, yeah, I had what I would regard as a quite a privileged upbringing for someone who loves footy. Yeah, that would have been amazing. And the team we're talking about is, is Balmain. That's right. Where did you grow up? Where did you guys live? Yeah, we lived in Leichhardt, so right in the middle of Tiger Territory. Yeah, in Short Street, Leichhardt. We actually lived next door to the Leichhardt RSL Club. So it was quite a busy, uh, noisy kind of environment. But yeah, very normal kind of upbringing in kind of inner west of Sydney. Yeah, Leichhardt was a, was a great area, very uh, working class but also was an area that a lot of Italian immigrants moved to. So, you know, my best friend growing up across the road was Luigi. You know, we had kind of the quintessential Australian pieces to it, but then uh, this bit of Italy that made Leichhardt such a great place to grow up. And it still holds on to that. And when you do get to go to games at Leichhardt, it is a special opportunity to go and go to the pubs and go to the restaurants before and after. And I guess it's similar to an extent with Manly that, they have their own unique culture and understanding of who they are. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. That that strong culture and strong kind of sense of community is a, is a similar trait. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those venues that if you're the away team, you know you've been there. Yeah, that's right. But you always look forward to it as well, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Um, it's something kind of a bit special. Definitely. So growing up, you played footy during your junior and your high school years. You mm-hmm. were a, a winger fullback or were you mainly a fullback growing up? Actually, growing up, I was a 5'8", huh? um, then gradually uh, moved to the centre and then to fullback through my older kind of high school years. Yeah, growing up, played for a club called Leichhardt Coaching Class, which was a great local club. We had a great rivalry with particularly Balmain Police Boys. 
Wayne Pierce was a contemporary of mine and Wayne and I played against each other through junior days and then played at school, uh, Christian Brothers Lewisham. We had a very good school team. Went on to win our year in the Opens against uh, Marcel and Ramick, which is also a very good rugby league school. Yeah, so very fond memories of that. Yeah, and growing up, was it all I want to do is play rugby league? I want to be a rugby league player or did you have ambitions greater than that? I guess it waxed and waned a bit, as you do. When I was very young, it was all about footy. Loved my footy and uh, couldn't wait to play on a Saturday morning. Then through high school, I guess I went through a period, probably when I was about, I don't know, 14, 15, where it wasn't that big a deal for me, to be honest with you. And, uh, and Discovered uh, a few other things that were a bit <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a natural thing. You know, if you look at um, statistics, you know, in, in all sports, but particularly kind of, uh, I guess, rugby league and, and boys orientated sports, 15 is a bit of a dropout period where you're right, there are other interests that you develop. Girls come along and kind of take a big chunk of your mind as well. So I went through that and then... Um, Thankfully for me, as I said, we had a very good opens team. So our final year at school and that I think got me, you know, thinking about maybe football could be a bigger part of my life again. So played a year or so after school and then was fortunate enough to be graded at Balmain. So I played in the Western Suburbs uh, District for a year with my mates after school. But Balmain was always where I wanted to be if I could be good enough and Went down and trialed along with, you know, 100 other blokes and uh, was fortunate enough to be graded in 1980. And we went on to have a very good year that year in under-23s, as, as it was at the time. Uh, made our way through to the grand final, but was beaten by a very good Parramatta team that had a number of guys that would go on to have long careers. Yeah. Do you want to name some of them? Oh, you know, we had um, guys like John Muggleton, Sturlow, uh, Eric Growth. Right. You know, they had a very good side coming through, as we did, but um, they got the cash on the grand final day. <laughs> That's not too bad, mm. losing to those uh, that calibre of players. Yeah. Okay, so you're under 23s. Tell us about the lead into making your first grade debut, what you had to go through. Obviously, more trials than playing, presume, reserve grade and from there. Yeah, I had a kind of, you know, I guess a traditional pathway through, you know, 23s, as I said, we had a very good first year, played reserve grade through, we won the reserve grade grand final in 82, uh, which was great. 83, I was fortunate enough to play a few games in first grade. And then at 84, 84, I played most of that year in first grade, certainly, well, I think all the second half of the year, at least. Was a fullback. We had a pretty decent fullback at Balmain at the time called Gary Jack. Mm-hmm who was, you know, outstanding player. And so I'd fill in for Gary when he was injured at fullback or on rep duty, but then I was able to uh, secure a spot on the wing, which was great. We had, a, we had a very good side at Balmain at the time. We were probably growing into a very good side, which culminated in, um, you know, making a couple of grand finals towards the end of the 80s. But yeah, really good bunch of blokes. Great time. I look, I was not, you know, not the best football player going around, but I was, I guess, what you call a really good club man. I played nearly 200 games, great games for Balmain, which I'm very proud of. And most importantly, uh, made some great friendships from and uh, have some pretty good memories. You mentioned that clubman side of, of yourself. Was there thoughts or opportunities to go anywhere? Was someone like a Gary Jack there locking down the fullback spot or was Balmain just home? Yeah, Balmain was home. You know, it never really entered my mind. There was at one point a bit of interest from uh, another another club in Sydney, but it never really... It wasn't know. manly by any chance, was it? No, it wasn't manly. No, <laughs> no. We, we used but, to take the Western Suburbs players, I think. Yeah, yeah, you took quite a few of those. Um, but well, we got you eventually anyway. We'll yeah. talk about that later yeah. in the show, but we got you eventually. No, exactly. Well, funnily enough, you, you played two games against Manly, I believe, for first grade. You scored a try in each of those games. 
but you never won against Manly. So I think you were yeah. seeing the future. You were doing enough, but not too much to beat us. Yeah, I got kind of vague memories. That one was, I think, at Leichhardt and one at um, what we now love as Lotto Land. Mm -hmm. I think one of them, I started the year ahead of Gary Jack. Gary got, I think, injured in pre-season and missed a bit of pre-season. And I... Or did you trip him over in the car park or something? <laughs> yeah, it was dark and he couldn't see me. But um, yeah, I got the jump on him for for a week or two. And but then he um, and one of those games was Manly, which was which was great. I was fortunate enough. I think uh, Blocker Roach went straight through, and I just uh, backed up down the middle and was lucky enough to get a try there. Is there footage of that that you still have or you can find? Because people know now you you're a father of eight, yep. so I'm sure there's plenty of opportunities to want to show off your wares to the kids and tell them that dad was a first grade football yeah the only problem with that is you know you, you tell them that story of course but then they go do their own research and they find <laughs> out they find some footage of you where you weren't so glorious and uh, bring you back to earth a bit so yeah there's a little bit of around the, the, the kids do their own research and they like to show me one where I missed a tackle rather than where I scored a try <laughs> sure so you finished your career after a few seasons what was next what was next for you because I'm sure that you know as you said that you just wanted to play footy and then it changed and all the rest did you find yourself going, shit, I have no idea what I want to do, or did you have a clear path? Yeah, no, footy for me was never the be-all and the end-all. I mean, I loved it, but, you know, we're going back to a day when it was part-time stuff. We all had jobs. Of course. Um, just towards the end of my career, you know, some of the guys at the very top of the tree, you know, were earning enough to, to make a career from it. Um, but the vast majority of us worked and trained, you know, two or three nights a week and then played. What were you doing? Uh, when I first started playing, I was studying. When I was at school, I was really keen to pursue a law degree and a law career. When I got to uni, though, and started that law degree, it didn't quite live up to what I thought it was. So I, I changed then to a, an economics degree, and I did that part-time for a while while I was playing, and then I, I deferred it, and then when I finished footy, I went back and finished that off. So, yes, it was always, as I say, footy was always a, a great part of my life, but not the central part. So I was, uh, for much of the latter end of my career, I was working with a company called TNT. So I was in a graduate program at TNT. They used um, to sponsor the referees back they in did. the day. Yeah. They did. Yeah, they did. For a long time. And we had a lot of footballers actually working at TNT at the time. Uh, I'm not sure if that was really a conscious decision or just going to happen that way, but I ended up on the commercial side of that business after doing a you know placement in different parts of the of, of the business through the graduate program. Ended up in the commercial end of the business and really enjoyed that. I had ten years at TNT. Okay, and from there, because there is you know numerous parts or experiences in your working career, where to from there? Yeah, so. After some time at TNT, I moved into Avis Rent-A-Car, which was, and I had six or seven really good years at Avis. It was a, a very well-run company. We were headquartered at St. Leonard's at the time. It was a, one of these kind of high-volume, low-margin businesses, so you had to get everything right to make a dollar. You had to make sure you had the right cars in the right places at the right time. It was a good introduction for me around variable pricing, so what you'd pay for a car today would be different to tomorrow and be different kind of here as it was to, you know, somewhere, you know, five miles away. And was that driven by demand? Yeah. Rent-a-car companies were quite pioneering in the way that they developed that kind of pricing model. Airlines, which I later spent most of my career in, built on a lot of that early work that car rental companies did. But yeah, it was about having the right algorithms to predict demand, to predict where that demand would come from and what, would, what the kind of price elasticity was present. 
this is a bit off track, but one thing that I've always been interested in with rental cars, and it might be a very simple answer, is do they eventually have to get, like you pick up a rental car in Victoria and drive it to Sydney, do they eventually have to work out a way of getting that back to that depot in Victoria eventually? or Well, eventually. Yeah, it it might go on quite a journey before it gets there, but um, at some point they will, you know, incentivize that car to get back to where it needs to be. And that's one of the inputs to a pricing model. So yeah, there's quite a bit to it, but my days at Avis were, were very good. You know, I learned a lot, learned a lot about that teamwork as well, that, that connection between the operational part of the business and the commercial side of the business and how, you know, if you get that right, you can really do well. And what role did you have there? They were sales manager roles, so started off as a New South Wales sales manager, went to an Australia sales manager, and then uh, my last role there was a director of sales and reservations, so all the commercial bits and bobs across both Australia and New Zealand. Okay, and, and did that lead into your travel work, or was that just the stepping stone as far as understanding that there were parallels between the rent-a-car and, and travel? Yeah, no, the rent-a-car industry is, um, sees itself very much part of the broader travel segment. And, um, you know, in that role with Avis, had a very close relationship with our airline partners because that is the, the key kind of driver to make sure that you had a, a strong airline partner and you were there to pick up the people as they got off the plane, so to speak. So it was a very good introduction for me into the broader travel industry and uh, airlines specifically. And I actually went from Avis to British Airways. Okay. Mm. And as you would have heard in the background there, the halftime siren has gone. We are going to really enjoy the second half of this chat because we talk about Stephen's uh, involvement in the travel industry as well as his involvement as CEO at two different NRL clubs. Uh, We'll hear from our sponsors in the meantime. Take a really quick break and we will be back for the second half of our chat with Manly CEO Stephen Humphreys. The Manly Warringah Seagulls thank our major partner United Resource Management for their ongoing support. Season 2020 is URM's 24th consecutive year sponsoring the Seagulls and they are also big supporters of communities right across Australia. The Seagulls also thank Premier Partners, Shore and Partners Financial Services, Lotto Land and all corporate partners of the club. For a full list of Seagulls corporate partners, head to seagulls.com.au. And we're back for the second half of our chat today with CEO of the Manly Sea Eagles, Stephen Humphreys. Stephen, before the break, we were just about to touch on the fact that after Avis, you went to British Airways. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, so I had a, um, a rare opportunity to, to join uh, British Airways. I say rare because um, airlines don't often recruit people in from outside in a relatively senior role. Airlines tend to breed their own and keep them for a long, long time. So an opportunity came up at British Airways, uh, which came my way. So I, I was really keen to explore that, took on the role as uh, sales manager for Australia and New Zealand. And I did that uh, based here in Sydney, based in the city. Uh, really good role. So I was responsible for all the revenue generation uh, in Australia and New Zealand. So it's about selling tickets. So that's about having agreements in place with uh, large corporations who would be doing lots of business travel doing deals whereby you would exchange some degree of discount and or other soft benefits in return for a commitment to use, in this case, British Airways. And then, of course, your travel industry partners. So your retail travel agents, your tour operators, your online travel agencies, making sure you got the mix of those things right to drive the kind of loads that we needed from the Australian-New Zealand market. So really good role, enjoyed it immensely. 
after a couple of years, I uh, was offered a role in London, which was great. I actually at that time, I, j- I just got married. So my wife and I were straight away on a on a honeymoon and part of that honeymoon was having a look for somewhere to live in London. Mm-hmm. So it was a really exciting time for us. And uh, we jumped in with both feet, went to London. We had uh, our first two boys during that time in London. And uh, the, the role I took on in London was managing all the uh, large corporate relationships for British Airways um, in, the, in the UK, which was the home market. Really high stakes game. I guess the first thing for me was the, the work was kind of similar to what I had experienced before, just the numbers were a lot bigger. Sure. And I guess the visibility and the pressure that comes with that. But it was a great role, enjoyed it immensely. You know, we, we love living in London as well, which we did in, in that stint for about three years. How did you find the, I guess, the transition from not only building new business relationships, but in a new environment? Um, did that kind of fit in as you were fitting in with your new lifestyle? You're also developing new corporate relationships? Yeah. The reality is it's the same, whether you're doing that in the UK market or Australia, the way you go about doing that and building trust and credibility with people, and then just working your way through trying to craft you know, deals that make sense for both parties. That, that was all you know, it wasn't foreign. It was very familiar. I guess the, the size of the of the deals and the transactions were a lot bigger and uh, you had to kind of build that credibility and trust over a bit of time. So, but I, I loved it. It was, it was great. I loved the kind of cut and thrust of the, of cutting, cutting the big deals there. You know, we would have stayed for, for a lot longer, but the reality was that I'd made my parents wait a long time for grandchildren. <laughs> and then when we started to have certainly them, made up for it. <laughs> yeah, that we're a long way from home. And my dad had a couple of health issues at the time as well. So it just made you feel a long way from home. So it was that family pressure that um, brought us back to Australia at that, at that time. And I'd kind of outgrown my um, British Airways opportunities in this part of the world. You know, I didn't want to leave British Airways. I, I, I really enjoyed my time there and had a lot of good friends. But fortunately, we were in an equity position relationship with Qantas at the time. So we did a deal where I was basically loaned to Qantas, seconded, if you like, for a period of time, which enabled me to come back to Australia, but not necessarily leave British Airways at the time. So it was a great thing. And I was really, really appreciative of the people who made that happen for me. Was that very much a timing thing? Did you have to try and make that happen to get what you needed to get personally as well out of it or did did the timing just work? The timing kind of worked. And I think um, like most things, if you've got a good track record and you've established some good relationships, you can normally find your way through a, you know, a bit of a dilemma like that one, a personal one. Uh, So I went across uh, to Qantas in kind of similar roles. Um, I headed up the corporate sales area for Qantas in Australia and then also for a while did the the industry side and then for a while managed sales uh, for Australia. So Qantas was a different kind of culture to um, to British Airways, uh, but both very good and both very successful, but just, just a little different in the way they went about things. But that's also great to be able to work in that different environment and take from that what you think works. So I, I ended up doing kind of five years or so at Qantas, and then an opportunity came up to try something a little different, and it was <laughs> it was in the travel industry, but it was the time when there was a fair bit of private equity involvement in the travel industry, and um, one of the large private equity firms had... Uh, aggregated a number of the travel industry assets and was looking for someone to run that in New Zealand. And I knew a few of the people involved. They convinced me over quite a period of time because to, to leave a business like Qantas or British Airways is a, you know, it's a bit of a big call because there, there aren't too many of those opportunities. 
but I took it on. And so it was running uh, what was called the Stella Travel Group in New Zealand. It accounted for about half of the entire travel industry in New Zealand. So had a number of different parts to it in retail travel, in corporate travel, in uh, what we travel wholesaling and ticketing. So it was a very diverse group, a large group in New Zealand. Uh, I was the CEO of the business. So that was an opportunity for me to have you know, full P&L responsibility for that business. And it was great. Unfortunately, two things happened for me. The, the weekend that my wife and I went across to Auckland to, to look for accommodation, my, my father had a, quite a serious stroke. And that meant that we delayed relocating the family to New Zealand because I thought, you know, I didn't want to move the family and put them through that. And then probably me wanting to go back to see my dad every weekend. How many are we talking in the tribe at that, uh, at that what stage? What were we up to at that point? I think we were probably... What did you forget after the first two? Probably four, maybe five. I can't quite remember. So that happened. So I, I commuted from Sydney to Auckland for a year. Um, and really? And yeah. what, what do you mean commute? Like was it so half it was, a week there? It was, actually, it was actually quite simple. So I'd have dinner with the family on a Sunday night, an early dinner. I'd then go to the airport, get on a flight to Auckland. I'd work all week and I'd be back Friday night for dinner. Wow. So for me, it was actually, you know, selfishly, it worked beautifully because I could just work during the week as much as I could. But weekend, it was, you had real separation from work and home, which I've never really had before. So it really worked for me. But unfortunately for my wife, of course, that meant she was... Um, I was going to uh, say, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get Cal on for an episode and we'll have a chat with her about how it worked. Yeah, her. she had a different kind of take on that one. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, all credit to her, she, um, she, she managed through that really well, but we couldn't sustain that. And also what happened right at that time was the global financial crisis hit. And so one of the motivations for me going into that role was to build some equity in that business myself. And um, that all changed with the GFC. You know, all businesses were challenged significantly, travel particularly. And so uh, over a bit of time, uh, I just agreed with my, my um, global CEO at the time that, that I would look to relocate back to Australia. And at that point, I, for the first time in my career, I genuinely had no idea what I was going to do. And that was both the most scariest time for me, but also the most... Liberating? Was, yeah, liberating is probably a good word, Ben, because it was, you know, it was like saying, okay, well, here I am, and where could I go, and, and who might want me? Was there, was there to, much looking back thinking, oh, maybe I should have stayed with that safety of Qantas or British Airways? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, definitely at the time. I you know, had a growing family, a large and con continuing to grow family. So you think of all those things. But, you know, it's funny how timing works. Right at that time, West Tigers had an opening for a CEO. And one conversation led to a, you know, a couple of couple of interviews. And before I knew it, I'd been offered that role and there I was. And so what was the timeline from leaving the travel business in New Zealand to starting at the Tigers? Pretty much immediate. Wow. It was immediate. So I'd, we'd agreed to make an announcement in New Zealand that I was going to be moving on from the business. And within a week or so, the West Tigers thing was done. And was so, that 2008 or 2009 you started at the Tigers? Uh, nine. Okay. Yeah, 2009. Right. So Before the season started or did you remember? No, it was, um, yeah, I came in kind of late that year. From memory, it was like July or August or some, something like that. I remember going to my first game at uh, Parramatta Stadium, actually. And, and at the time, the Tigers had gone through a lean patch. You might yeah. recall they won the premiership in 2005, which was brilliant. I was there. Oh, uh, were you? Yeah, yeah. Um, had you come back from Britain for we, that? We, yeah, we were back. We were just back when I was with Qantas. Right. So did okay. you keep a relationship with the club during all those years? Or um, how, did, how did the whole conversation start, I guess? Did you just apply for the job because you knew it was there or did that come no, from a relationship? Um, I maintained a relationship of, of sorts, I guess. You know, 
people have relationships. Don't you? So it's the people who I knew who were, you know, involved in some way in the club. So, yeah, I, I had a conversation with, um, with one of the directors at the time who I'd known for a long time. And, you know, I didn't get any favours. I went through the normal process along with, you know, many other applicants. But um, it happened relatively quickly. So tell us about your time there. It was a successful time for the Tigers on the field. 2010, they made the preliminary final, lost by one point to the Dragons. 2011, again, lost to major semifinals to the Warriors. Yep. Uh, Still don't know how we lost that game, but anyway. Yeah, Christian Nino, just from nowhere. Tell us about the volatility of being a CEO of a rugby league club. I saw a bit of everything at West Tigers. Um, So we had, as you said, a couple of very successful years, had a kind of mediocre year and then a very poor year. So Mm. I got to see the different uh, performance levels and what comes with those different performance levels. West Tigers is a, if not unique, it's unusual in its history and its makeup. In in some respects, that's what makes it a very great club, you know, from my view, but also one that can at times be difficult to operate in. And the time I was there, there were challenges. You know, one of the partners in Balmain had its financial issues as a result of you know developments that that didn't didn't go their way. The west side of the joint venture was um, strong, and thankfully they've been able to work that through in in recent years and you know kept things together. But I guess I describe it as some of my best moments from a professional point of view, but also some of the worst. And yeah. you get a bit of everything in rugby league, uh, and you uh, do. certainly had it there. I'd imagine, without going into too many specifics. Was it a sacking of Tim Shane's and then uh, Mick Potter coming on board? Yeah. Yeah, that was a really, really difficult time. I mean, Tim, you know, a legend of the game, a, a incredibly well-credentialed coach, premiership-winning coach. He was the Australian coach at the time. Yeah. You know, just someone who deservedly had the respect of everyone. So once, when the board made that decision to that they wanted to make a change in the coaching, that was difficult, no question about it. How did the process, is it up to you to speak to Tim? Is it the board? What's the process? Look, I guess every club would approach that in their own way. But yes, I spoke to Tim about that. And the chairman at the time, Dave Trodden, was, um, you know, very much part of those conversations. But yeah, it was acrimonious and um, took a bit of doing, you know, even after Tim had left in terms of the financial settlement around that. So I won't go any, into any more detail around that other than to say it was it was really challenging. You know, time over, I think we could have and should have done some things differently, but that's part of it, isn't it? You take something from every experience and you that's, learn. That's not just rugby league, that's, that's business, yeah. that's life in general. Yeah. And as we hear in the background, that is the full-time siren, but considering the guests, considering the future and considering we haven't even touched on uh, the Manly Seagulls left, I believe the referees have called for golden point extra time. It's an intense and exciting moment, so let's let's keep things going. Stephen, you finished up with the Tigers. Was that 2013, I believe? Yep. yep that's right. And then on to British Airways mm-hmm. uh, from there. I, I don't want to skip over that time in British Airways, but I know you were head of global sales and you know very successful going back to the UK. I think it obviously says a lot for the relationships you had at not only at the Tigers yeah. but at British Airways to kind of go full circle twice. And I guess by this time of your career, it was a bit of you're able to choose where you went to because of the runs you'd racked up and the, the relationships you've built in the past. Yeah, well, I think that's the ultimate test, isn't it, to, to be welcomed back somewhere. I feel felt very fortunate to go back to BA. I, it's not something I had contemplated. I actually rang a former boss of mine about a, a different job opportunity that I'd, I'd had at the time and was seeking a bit of counsel from him. And somewhere out of that, I ended up back in London, <laughs> <laughs> this time with a lot more kids. Um, <laughs> sure. We, so we, we headed back with seven kids and had, had our final, I say final, please God, uh, 
the uh the I've seen the hours there. you're working these days. <laughs> yeah, you don't have time to have another kid. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> so um went back there and took on the role of global sales uh, head, uh which which was brilliant. So it was a big role, big responsibility, but yeah, lo- loved it. And uh it was just um Again, we were there over five years this second time round, and it was, you know, our younger children were just getting to an age where we wanted to reconnect them with family and Australia and Australia's values and attributes. And again, I wasn't exactly sure of the passage back to Australia. The manly role came up. I wasn't looking to re-enter sport or rugby league necessarily, but when it came up, I knew Scott Penn uh, through my time at West Tigers, not well, but you know, you, you're in meetings together and you, you build a bit of a rapport. So I just reached out to Scott and said that I was, you know, looking to relocate to Australia at some point. And if, if there was an interest there, uh, I'd be certainly keen to have a chat. And that happened. And again, I went through a process with some other very well-qualified candidates and thankfully landed the job and um, been here about six months now and loving it. Excellent. Excellent. So you did move back and you came on board and you faced, you know, a few difficulties, you know, within the game. And then of course, you know, what everyone's experienced with COVID and all the rest. Tell us about coming back and obviously, you know, there was certain things around Des and how he left the Bulldogs and all the rest and that he likes to, you know, run his own race and he's very successful uh, man at doing that. But you're the CEO. Was there a little bit of preconceived ideas about how you would get along with Des and, and what, what was that first meeting like? Look, what I'd say is Des being at Manly was actually one of the most attractive features of, of coming here. Right. Uh, and, I, and I mean that. The relationship between the CEO and the coach is critical. The relationship with the, with the chairman is also very important. But on a day-to-day, you know, down in the, in the ditches, uh, the CEO and, and the coach have to be on the same page. Don't have to agree all the time. And in fact, you know, it's quite quite good to have some robust disagreements. But I always knew that, uh, well, first of all, Des has my total respect for, for what he's achieved in the game. He's always been, even when he was a player, he was always a bit different, you know, on the edge, pushing boundaries. And, you know, from what I'd seen on the coaching side, he was the same. He was always trying to be at the cutting edge of the, the latest bit of research or technology or finding, you know, that the one percenters. And I like that. I like, you know, that, that thirst for continuous improvement. So that was a real motivation for me to come here in the first place. Um, since working with Des, um, he hasn't disappointed. He's all in, all in, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. He buys into what's, you know, what we're trying to do. He's there to support his players and his, you know, fellow staff. It's very positive. And, you know, we will have, we'll, we will have moments along the way, but, you know, I'm very happy to be working with him. First impressions of the players? First impression is there's a good leadership group, a strong leadership group. Chez is, uh, you know, the leader of that that group, and you know his uh, his maturity and his his stature in the game is really important. But he's supported with another three or four guys. You know, people like Joel Thompson, Curtis Sirenen has developed into a leader. You got you know Marty Tapao and and Adam, and then you and then you throw in the Trebojevic brothers. We're really blessed. We've got a core group of strong leaders. Well, first of all, they're great footballers, which is brilliant. But there's, there are these other dimensions to them that, um, you know, we're very fortunate to have that group. And I do believe that um, we can build that into success for, you know, years to come. Yeah, instilling that culture of being decent players but decent men is obviously hugely important from both the football department but also from the front office, back office, of, you know, not just decent men, decent men and women. Yeah, definitely. You know, we need to stand for something. We need to have our beliefs and values and, and actually live them. And um, from what I've seen so far at Manly, we're in good shape on that point. 
we need to continue to, to work on it because, um, you know, the way we're set up, if you look at, you know, the structure of our core group and from a salary cap point of view, we're going to need to be bringing in young guys to complement our core group over the coming years. So that brings with it that challenge of getting them to buy into what, what we're all about as well. And, and that requires leadership, but I'm, I'm confident we've got it. Yeah, excellent. Can you talk about the immediate future, the things planned for Manly? I mean, you know, we've got the Centre of Excellence that's been pushed back a little bit, but we're hoping to start that by the end of the year. There's talk about, you know, new boutique stadiums. Yeah. Give us an insight into the future of the Manly Seagulls Club. Yeah, well, look, first of all, in terms of the Centre of Excellence, we're out to tender at the moment for, um, for a builder to construct the uh, grandstand and the Centre of Excellence. So that's well on its way. The talk just more recently around a further kind of fuller development of, of Lotto Land, I think is real. I think it is within our grasp. And I don't say that in a way that is meant to tease anyone because I'm very familiar here that it's been talked about on the peninsula for a long time, but it genuinely does feel within within our grasp. We've got a leader now in Peter Volandis who's very bought into that. He believes in the tribalism and and that being an important part of the rugby league experience. So we're going to build on that and the relationships we have at various levels of government to, to make that a reality for the community here, which I think is a game changer. If we can do that, we really will change the experience, but also just the, the feeling that people have that, you know, rugby league is front and centre here on the Northern Beaches community. I know you're big on community. Unfortunately, the whole COVID-19 situation kind of halted yeah. a few new things we had in play. Most importantly, the Seagulls Foundation, which you were really the driving force behind. There'd been a lot of talk about it for the years and you kind of brought it all together and said, right, we're going to get this out there. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. You know, rugby league clubs for me are all about the community. They are community assets. We're there for the community. So um, we need to demonstrate that in lots of different ways that we act and behave. The foundation, I think, is really important. There are lots of people who, who want to support what we do, both on and off the field, and we need to keep reaching out and giving them ways that they can connect with us, and the foundation is one of those. And I certainly hope that over, over time it will enable us to do a lot more in the community. That's the plan anyway. But, um, yeah, certainly for as long as I'm here, we will always see ourselves as being a central part of the community uh, rather than be something that you know people look at. And obviously, we talk about the commercial and corporate side of our business. Something you would have noticed coming in and um, now that you're really driving is the, the relationships we have with our partners and how community-focused they are as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real um, connection of uh, and symmetry there of, of thinking. You know, URM, Shore and Partners, you know, just to name, name two, they have community at the heart of everything they do. You talk to those guys and it doesn't take many sentences before you get into what can we do for the community or, you know, who, who can we help here? Or, so I'm very comfortable that we're aligned in our thinking, uh, which is great. And there are other partners that we have as well, uh, both today and some that we're working on at the moment that will complement that as well. We talk about other partners. Tripodil is a great example about the conversations exactly. that you're now having with Tripodil through your experience in the travel industry you're able to share some experience and some insights with them which is adds value back from us rather than just a logo on a jersey yeah well i think that's a key part of it isn't it trying to help each other understand where there are some challenges or opportunities and use whatever network you've got or experience you've got and it goes both ways i mean those guys have have helped us uh you know in that case trip a deal with different opportunities or you know standing by us when we need them so I certainly want our partners, you know, when asked about what the relationship is like with Manly, to say that it's, you know, they're adding value. 
and that comes in different ways, but they share our values and they're helping us kind of drive the, the business agenda that, that we have. Well, you would have heard in the background there, the siren has gone. Not surprisingly, Daly Cherry Evans has kicked the field goal to win the game. Off his right, off his left boot, doesn't matter. <laughs> Stephen, you're six months into the role here as CEO of the Seagulls. Going by recent history, that means you've got about 12 months left in, in the role. But uh, I'm very confident and I think uh, Seagulls fans should be really excited that it will be a lot longer than that. We're really thrilled to have you on board and we can't wait to share the success of the Manly Seagulls not only on the field, but off the field with you and the members and the fans for years to come. Thanks, Ben. That's certainly the plan. Excellent. Thank you very much, Stephen Humphreys. This has been the Seagulls Business Podcast, presented by and recorded in the studios of Manly Media Partner, ASCII Live Media. You can follow the Seagulls on LinkedIn. For more episodes and other official Seagulls podcast channel shows, head to seagulls.com.au forward slash podcast. This has been an ASCII live media production for the Manly Warringah Seagulls official podcast channel. 